Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. Dr. Chris, look, they say there's a book in everybody, but you have to have pick the moment to write it. So why now? Yeah, well... You're absolutely right. I mean, thinking about this for, for, for years and years and years, and of course I come from a, a journalistic family. You know, my father, mother, uncle, grandfather were all journalists of, of different sorts. And I've always enjoyed communicating. I love lecturing. That's my absolute favourite part of, of medicine and, and my, my profession. And uh, I, I suppose in the heel of the hunt, it was the, I suppose, the crisis of 2011, you know, where I, I you know, I, 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 I muddled my words in, in, in a radio programme. And as a result of that, you know, there was this kind of online pile on. But it wasn't, it was by no means just online. I mean, I was getting abusive phone calls and letters. I had, uh, you know, disciplinary. Uh, action in the chief executive's office, or at least a, a sort of inverted commas inquiry into you know into, into my conduct on the radio and the national airwaves, and you know the, the most painful thing of all was the ostracism. I, you know, I was ostracised by huge numbers of general practice colleagues and and trainees, and I think if you know me, you'll know that uh, I have always thrived on training and teaching apprentices. I mean, I've always loved to have nursing students, medical students, any kind of students, TY students uh, in and around. I mean, I, I, I feed off their energy and their enthusiasm. And I think most older doctors and nurses and people of all sorts thrive having a young person around, particularly if they're interested in, in what you're doing. Um, so I was, you know, blanked on streets and corridors and shops and, uh, you know, I was kind of no platform. I wasn't invited to, to for example, seminars, conferences, debates about... Th- for listeners, you had just, you'd spoken out in a way that you have always done, Chris, as long as I know you yes. speak out. But yes. the timing was so unfortunate. Yeah. Just outline that. Well, people. what happened really, PJ, was that... Um, Conditions, I mean, surprise, surprise, conditions in CUH in 2011 were absolutely appalling and unbearable. And what people may not have known is that I'd been a consultant for 20 years at that stage almost. And the conditions, the trolleys, as far as the eye can see, the misery all around for everybody. And above all, the difficulty in delivering the kind of really high quality service that people train to deliver. You know, the nurses and the doctors and all the other allied professionals in an emergency department. And it was incredibly difficult. So I had one particularly desperate day where there were people coming in with really, really long-standing problems with their shoulders and backs that they should ideally have gone to see specialists with. People waiting six, eight, ten hours in the waiting room of the old uh, CUH A&E department. Um, and there were people coming in, you know, as, as just it, 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 the, I, I, some of the locums, you know, these doctors we have to hire in a short notice because we haven't got the staff. You know, I'd, 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 I'd been told that some of them were seeing as few as two or three patients in an eight-hour shift and of course they're being paid handsomely for this so you know I was at my absolute wits end with all of this when I went on to the Pat Kenny show by invitation and basically he asked me you know so Chris tell me what's going on in, in CUH you know what's the, what's what's causing all this uh, A&E overcrowding 
beyond the, the lack of beds we keep hearing about, beyond that, what other things are causing it? So I basically let fly, and I, I particularly let fly clumsily because I'd just been given a notice that there was a major incident unfolding in Cork Airport, you know, that there was rumours or reports of, a, of an airplane crashing. This and was the Manx 2. This is the Manx 2 air crash in 2011. And of course, by definition, I was going to be involved in any response to that. And indeed I was. And as I sat on the stage, you know, taking his questions, uh, you know, an alert came to me from CUH, you know, please come to CUH, you know, immediately. And... Um, so I just said, look, you know, it's not just about beds. It's also about, you know, people sending patients into the ED when they're not emergency cases. You know, I mean, the emergency department should and must be. If we're to try and sort it at all, it's got to be just for crisis, for accident, for an emergency. Not for people who've had, you know, sore shoulders for years and years and years. Especially when they've got private cover and their family wants to send them to a private orthopaedic surgeon, which is what happened that the night before in CUH. And, uh, you know, we have to have young doctors who are capable of seeing more than, you know, one patient every three hours. And, you know, as director of training, director of postgraduate education in CUH and in Liverpool before that, you know, I've always said to our young trainees who I think get very, very good training in Ireland, both in terms of the lectures and the books and the, and the teaching uh, and, of course, the experience. But I've always said to them, look, we, we need you to see one and a half to two patients an hour. You know, that's the kind of metric. So when I'm hearing of people who, you know, who are, you know, are locums and are being paid far more than the, the permanent staff and they're seeing one patient every two or three hours, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I just kind of, I basically lost it with the stress. And I said, you know, and we need to have youngsters. And I said, when I was a baby doctor, and that was my, that, those were the fatal words, when I was a baby doctor. And I can assure you, PJ, you know, last week on Twitter, I saw one first-year doctor describing herself as a baby intern and I can assure you that elderly doctors in the 60s and 70s often say when I was a baby doctor There's Adam Kay whose books you may have read yes described himself as a baby doctor Correct. it doesn't surprise it's me at all to hear it's an absolute normal thing in all professions and I even said when I was ba- a baby doctor we used to be expected to see 10, 14, 16 patients a shift you know I admit back in the ancient days of 1980 2, 3, 4 but still you know I, so anyway I, I, so in a sense I let fly and um, I, I, I gave my tuppence worth and then I had to rush off and I rushed straight to CUH and I got involved in one of the busiest days of my career, clearing CUH so that we could bring in the casualties, then heading off down in, in a police car, guard a car down to the Mercy, where the Mercy had its busiest day because all the patients diverted from CUH had gone to the Mercy and we had a hugely busy day, but we coped. And then I went to a funeral of a, of a, of a friend in, in Tipperary. I, th- I had completely forgotten the interview and the next morning I, I opened my email and there was an email from the president of the Irish Medical Organization saying dear Chris um, we've ha- our switchboard has been overwhelmed with calls complaining about you and what you said about young doctors and GPs and uh, I was taken aback and interestingly the, 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 the previous president of the IMO my a great friend and colleague said you know, defended me immediately. Says, but is there anything that Chris Luke said that wasn't the truth or accurate? To which the answer was sort of no. But he shouldn't have said what he said the way he said it. So that's what I was stuck. And then he, over the next day, week, month, year, I was 
blackballed effectively. I was sent to Coventry, I was ostracised, whatever you want to call it. The, the junior doctors were saying that I had called them baby doctors and implied that they were lazy, which of course I hadn't. I'd said it was the locums that we were having to employ who were seeing two or three doctors and by the way often spoke little or no English. And what I said about the GP, I said some, a small number of GPs will insist on sending non-emergency long-standing cases to the ED at the emergency department at CUH and the Mercy even when they must know that it's bedlam there and the elderly are having to wait 10, 12, 18 hours because of the overwhelming numbers. And that's really what I said. I said a small number uh, were you know, sending patients to the emergency department and, and, you know, and, and that is, remains a, the fact. It's a small number and it remains the locums I was concerned about. And all the detail that is, is in the book, it, it, it hurts you physically and mentally and... Did, is that what led to the burnout, Chris, that you had? Because we talk so much on the programme and have talked about burnout. You've been there. It's an illness, not just being knackered. Yes, it is. It's a, it's, as I say in the book, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly interesting illness, unless you have it. But actually the WHO have defined it as a workplace-related illness. So that's absolutely crucial. It's related to the workplace. And no, it didn't cause the burnout. I'd had burnout for years. I'd had burnout in, in the late 90s in Liverpool with the gang warfare, you know, opening up gangsters, taking bullets out of gangsters, you know, the heroin you know huge levels of violence drink poverty you know so I mean I was really worn out by that stage and I had a couple of other crises you know I'd had a kind of panic attack on stage in front of all the the surgeons of Ireland which had been really traumatic but I had gone on but what was so devastating about the situation on the radio there in 2011 was that my entire career PJ has been built on being a likeable popular and kind person I have I, I've always preferred I mean I've said it it's, it sounds a biz, like a bizarre weird cliche I've always preferred love to loot and I'm regarded as some kind of eccentric you know for that reason but I pride myself on being kind and I, I will say the one thing that has kept me going is the love and affection of my patients and of my, of my nursing colleagues who have constantly uh, told me you know that I have been kind and I have made a difference and that has kept me going but to lose the support en masse of so many youngsters and so many general practitioner colleagues. You know, I mean, my oldest friends are GPs. And I was a youngster in, our, in the worst conditions in Ireland in the early 80s when we worked every second night, every second weekend, got paid tuppence halfpenny, paid for all our own training. And I had to leave Ireland because there were no jobs. So, you know, it was absolutely heartbreaking. And of course, the tragedy was I didn't know who was going to say hello and who was going to scowl at me. And even my, my, my wife was a medical rep going around the GP surgeries of, of Munster at the time. And sort of every second GP would say, oh, are you rated that, that you know, bleep, bleep uh, in, in, in Cork? And, you know, so that was indirectly uh, extremely cr- uh, crushing as well. I can see the pain in your face mm. as, you, as you tell me this story now. And as I said, it's all detailed in the book. Was this the time to tell that story in this detail? And was that the motivation for the book? Yes, and to be absolutely honest with you, I felt after t- I'd let 10 years go, it was the anniversary of the incident and two or three uh, friends 
kept saying to me, look, you've got to write the story, write the story, the tricky childhood and all the other sort of things. And, you know, ultimately it was Brian O'Connell, my, my great friend at RTE, my, who's, a, you know, my reporter friend, uh, who basically nudged me over the line in, in terms of doing it. And uh, I, I, I have him to thank, and I've said he's a lot to answer for. <laughs> Chris, you've always talked about the state of the health service. You've devoted your life to it. You, you, you point out its faults and failings in the book, but you also point out its positive elements. What do you make of our public health service now in 2021? Well, I hope that uh, as the years unfold uh, going forward and as the pandemic fades into distant memory and we learn to just you know, add our coronavirus vaccine every year to the flu vax, I hope we look back on this time as a time of wonderful genuinely impressive solidarity uh, on the part of the people of Ireland, you know, of whom 90% are vaccinated. You know, just compare that particular metric with, with, the, with, with the similar figures all around the world. You know, there's less than 1% of people vaccinated in sub-Saharan Africa. That's a feature of poverty and, you know, disorganisation and, and, you know, corruption and, and, and a lack of investment in, in, in systems. In the, in the States, some of the numbers are absolutely woeful because of people's resistance and misinformation. So for all sorts of reasons, the vaccine levels uh, in Ireland are a reason to celebrate. I think the performance of the health service staff from bottom to top has been absolutely magnificent. You know, I've, 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 I've been in testing centres, I've worked at the front line, I have been to the HSE HQ repeatedly for very on business, uh, and at every level, the, 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 the solidarity, the pulling together, the consensus, the, 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 the unanimity, the unity of purpose, and the coherence and cohesion has been absolutely fantastic, and I think we should be incredibly proud of that. And even just within my own specialty, when I came back from the UK, from the NHS, um, following the sort of training that every Irish medic really sort of has to undergo overseas for a while, I had spent 14 years waiting for my job. Even then, there was only 14 consultants in emergency medicine in Ireland, about. Now there's about 100, and we have hundreds of brilliant medical students who are uh, intent on careers in emergency medicine. We have dozens of utterly brilliant trainees, and we have... Uh, you know, I, I, and it's not a word I, I bandy about, but we have a number of geniuses scattered around the state who are leading the way. In, and, and I don't want to embarrass people naming them in Cork, but we, I mean, Cork is now like a mecca for excellence in pre-hospital care. But once the pandemic is over, I want people to think we were able to collectively pivot as a nation and as a service of 100,000 nurses, doctors, ancillary workers, other professionals, and just devote ourselves to one purpose, which is to save the nation from this ghastly virus, this plague. I think that we should just apply the same sort of ambition and determination and devotion to improving frontline care. And we just need to get organised. I remember always my great shooter, my great mentor in Edinburgh, Dr Keith Little, who said the art of resuscitation is organisation and that applies for all medicine. First and foremost, it's about getting organised, identifying priorities and assigning tasks to everybody. I think we do that and we, we look back constantly for the next 10 years on how well we did and we 
emulate what we did in the pandemic will make an enormous difference to the quality of care for everybody who needs our health service. I've often mentioned to my listeners in passing over the last year and a half that one thing we have learned from this pandemic is there should be no such word as can't. And we should apply that going forward in the health service. Do you agree with me? I couldn't agree more, PJ. I couldn't agree more. Um, Anything is possible. And we have seen how despite the fact that all the conversation in 2019 was about the failures, the deficits, the failings of the health service, look what we did in the subsequent two years. An incredible effort on the part of everybody. And when I went back to work in the Mercy last year and I got a phone call from Connor DC, who's now the Professor of Emergency Medicine, but started out as my, one of my first interns, you know, 15 years old, here he is, and he rang me, he says, welcome home, Chris, he said. And I said to him, Connor, are, are you shattered? Meaning, you know, all the work that was going on to prepare the CUH and the Mercy for, for, for the, the, the onslaught. And he said, no, shattered. No, 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 no. He said, but I'm really excited. I said, I said, Connor, you know what? You are a sick person but you know what I'm really excited too and we both roared laughing because that defines emergency physicians and emergency nursing you know what they actually love this stuff Chris thank you for always being available to the program to speak to us yeah PJ it's an honor and a pleasure and thank you as I've written in my inscription in the book to you thank you for listening when others wouldn't or couldn't Corks 96 FM